0: you are listening to moving on with pain the podcast this podcast is presented by the danish society for pain and physiotherapy this episode is created with and for the european pain federation if you'd like to watch the following content in video format you can visit the EFIC facebook page and head to videos we hope you enjoy today's episode Welcome back, everyone. We are still here at the European Pain Congress in Valencia. This time I'm here with Professor Jude. Oh, God's sake, why did I not that's write that right. down? Yeah, we talked about Pace, this, didn't we? Yeah, we talked right. about what do you do live when you want to do a retake. <laughs> so, okay, so I was going to say Judith, but when I say Judith, you think I'm yelling at you. So, <laughs> Professor right. Judy Pays is here with me. You are a nurse. Um, um, of course, you're a professor. We're going to get into that right in a moment, and you're from the US. I am. So you'll be our first American guest here.
1: Oh, wonderful. welcome! Thank you. I was going to say
0: welcome to the show. It sort of feels like a show already, yes, but
1: yes, it's
0: just a chat, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, welcome. Um, you did your PhD in 1993, I think. Which, was two, it two? Yes. Yeah? And uh, and our fact researcher found out that that is a year where the CD sold more than audio cassettes.
1: You're making me feel old already. Thank oh, no. you. I, I'm just so <laughs> glad
0: we're not using CDs anymore.
1: Yeah. yeah. Agree.
0: So things move, don't they? They have. And speaking yes. of moving, so yes. you uh, you started out as a nurse and I now do. you're a professor. What, what went in between there?
1: Sure. So I started out as an oncology nurse caring for people with cancer. And after a while, it became clear that I, I needed and I wanted more information. So I uh, obtained a master's degree, which allowed me to be an advanced practice nurse in the United States. And then um, I was often in scientific meetings like this and was really eager to understand more about cancer pain and the underlying mechanisms of cancer pain. And so I went back. Can and, I
0: just stop you there? Yeah, so cancer yeah. pain. Yeah what does that mean? So yeah. is that is that a thing or is it a, you know, a phenomenon for covering many things or what is it?
1: Sure. So cancer pain is a title for quite a few different kinds of syndromes and we can categorize it in quite a few different ways. And in fact, there isn't always a lot of agreement on the ways we can group these or put them into boxes. One way is to look at whether the pain is related to the tumor or the treatment or something totally unrelated. And Mm -hmm. since cancer is a disease of older adults in general, we see a lot of pre-existing arthritis and other kinds of pain syndromes.
0: And you would say that people who have cancer, they are so unfortunate that they shouldn't necessarily have other diseases as well but that's not how it works is it it's
1: not how it works it doesn't give you a pass there would be
0: like a fifth of cancer patients as well who have chronic pain in itself wouldn't it and they would on top of that they would have cancer Mm -hmm. which then these cells can also cause the nervous system to react and cause pain Mm -hmm. and on top of that the treatment can give them more pain right so that's really an unlucky triad isn't it
1: it is it is and it's something that we're learning about it's the good news, bad news? Yeah. The good news is people with cancer are living longer and longer, and many people are achieving a cure because of these fantastic new treatments. But The downside, the bad news, is that some of these treatments can lead to persistent pain syndromes. Yeah. And that's another way of grouping. There are acute pain syndromes that happen with chemotherapy, for example, or radiotherapy, where people get skin reactions. Those are acute, they're painful, and they subside. Unfortunately, we have neuropathies and other kinds of syndromes that can be more chronic from our treatments.
0: Yeah. And and when you have these types of, of different types of pain and different patients, different categories, how can you then research this because it's so diverse there's so many things so how do you go about doing research in a topic that is so diverse
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a really great question and frankly we need more research in the basic mechanisms of cancer pain there are just a handful of basic scientists studying would you the problem. would you share
0: with me what what is a basic mechanism when you say that word, what is it
1: Sure. So there is a basic scientist or a small group of basic scientists who are looking at bone tumor-related pain. And they've developed a model in rodents and in other animal models to understand what substances are being released and what might evoke that pain or cause that pain. And the purpose is, then we might be able to develop prevention in the best of all possible worlds or treatments. There's another group of individuals who are studying the neuropathies that occur from chemotherapy. And those neuropathies are similar to the kind of neuropathies that diabetics get, where the fingertips and the toes feel burning or tingling. Yeah, so, so neuropathy
0: means nerve damage, right? Nerve damage and, right? And some of the people who damage their nerves. So you can have a neuropathy and no pain, but some of the people who have neuropathies, they also have pain, right? That is correct. We had a great talk with Professor Pierre Henson about this, so we don't need to go into that. But if you want to know more about that, the talk with Pierre Henson is, is a great resource for that. So sorry for the, the, the diversion so, there.
1: So, so we have basic scientists who study these underlying mechanisms and we need more basic scientists who are exploring some of the other treatments and the long-term complications. And we have clinicians who are trying to characterize What happens when people experience neuropathy? What happens functionally? What happens subjectively? What does it feel like? And also, what are the ramifications? What happens to the individual's ability to move and their performance and their social life and how all of these pain syndromes just affect all aspects of life? And then there are investigators who are looking at treatments to determine what might be the best pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic approach to manage.
0: And they would these. look at big, big groups of people and some get one type of medicine or exercise or whatever mm-hmm. and another group don't. They would get what we call usual care perhaps. Mm-hmm. And then you compare which goes better. Is that is that how it's
1: Precisely. done? Precisely. Yeah. Exactly. And we have trials of exercise for people with neuropathy. We have trials of acupuncture for people with neuropathy. Uh, There's also a pain syndrome that we see associated with hormonal therapies. Many people with breast cancer are given hormonal therapies called aromatase inhibitors. Acupuncture has been shown to be of some benefit to that group of people. So lots of investigators, we need more because we need more data we have more and more people with cancer, more and more of these painful syndromes. We owe it to the people who are experiencing them yeah. to give them scientifically based treatments.
0: And and especially perhaps for the group with suffering from cancer and thereof related pain, they they would also have many other different symptoms, wouldn't they? Like their diff- dizziness or... Um, don't like to eat or weight loss? Or is, is that true or is that just my perception?
1: Your perception is accurate, but it depends upon the phase of the individual's experience. So many people who are early on in the course of their treatment, they're going to have side effects from our treatment. Mm. People who are long-term survivors have long-term adverse effects from our treatment as we've spoken of. People who have advanced disease are much more likely to have fatigue, uh, maybe weight loss, loss of appetite. So there are many, many symptoms. And you're right, rarely does any of those individuals experience just one symptom. No. It's usually multiple symptoms or clusters of symptoms.
0: So I think in, in terms of the magic pill, what everyone seems to come up with is there is no such thing, but if there was, it would be exercise. What do you think about exercise and, wow. and cancer-related pain?
1: I often tell my patients, movement is medicine. Even if you are very limited in your ability to just walk outside for a little while. Um, when I assess pain, I assess the person's ability to function And we set goals based upon their function. So for some of my patients, cancer survivors, it might be their goal, if we can do a better job with their pain, will be to get back to work. For some of my patients, it may be to walk outside a little bit. And for some of my patients, their functional Goal may be to have enough pain control to hold their grandbaby. Yeah. So or to the sit goal's a, always a hard right? Yeah yeah, 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 to be with their family at a, a restaurant or enjoy a dinner or a meal.
0: And there's just another thing I want to round you uh, with in terms of cancer. Uh, I, was, I was talking to a group of patients or people who had survived cancer and, and pain was one of their problems. And I talked to them about pain. And the question that keep coming up was, but usually when we have pain, there's something wrong with us. So now every time we have pain, we think the cancer is back. Yes. Is that something you you can recognize?
1: Oh, that is a huge problem. And I understand it completely. Once you've had cancer, there is always that fear, the uncertainty, might it come back? Yeah. And it's been described uh, to me by some patients as the sword of Damocles. It's always hanging over you. Yeah, And I, I give the example, Monday mornings, the phone is often ringing off the hook because people call and they say, Judy, I think something is wrong. Yeah, And then we'll explore, well, what did you do over the weekend? And it turns out maybe they were very active or the grandchildren were over and they were playing at the park and running around and usually by the time they finish describing their weekend they say never mind
0: (laughs) it might be yeah but but that is probably one of the biggest things that a nurse or any practitioner can do is is create this relationship with the patient isn't it to make sure that we can give them the expertise that they can reflect in because they know how it is doesn't it? and they know their worries and problems but i think we can be there to help them can't we
1: all of us, we can listen, we can normalize for them that this is really common. Many people with cancer experience this, and we can validate you're not unusual. This yeah. is the norm. Yeah. It's okay for you to have these feelings. But let's talk about ways to reframe some of those emotions or those beliefs so that they're a little bit more positive or more helpful.
0: And it's interesting because the whole idea about uh, advising patients is, is, is really running in, in the whole field of pain, isn't it? Because yeah. we can really do something if, if, a, patient, if a person feels safe. Yes. Yes. And we will have a chat tomorrow with Professor Lorimer-Mosley, who's done some work in this field. So that would be interesting to go more into. But yes. you, were here, you are here in the studio because you've given a, a so-called plenary lecture, uh, which means that your peers, us here... We appreciate what you've done.
1: Thank you.
0: And your talk was on cancer and opioids. So now that we've talked about other means of of pain management, should we go into that topic? and, And maybe you can tell us what the plenary was about.
1: Sure. So opioids are such a complicated topic right now. And yet, especially in cancer pain, especially when people have moderate to severe pain, Especially when people have really complex illness, opioids are still the foundation of pain control. Can I wind
0: back there? For you said, opioids is a complex topic right now. Yeah. What what's within that?
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, as you may have heard, in the United States and in some other countries as well, there has been an epidemic of opioid-related deaths. Yeah. And people have misused the opioids and unfortunately substance use disorder, which is a little less stigmatizing of a term, um, formerly called addiction, it's a disease and it's highly stigmatized and I often remind people that cancer was highly stigmatized 20, 30, 40 years ago. People didn't acknowledge that they had cancer, the public was fearful. If someone had cancer, you wouldn't want to go near that person. You might catch it. And now that's the way we treat people with substance use disorder. These are really complicated illnesses. And unfortunately, many of the people who have substance use disorder have gotten a hold of the opioids that have been prescribed for legitimate purposes, and they're misusing these drugs. That began in the 90s in the U.S. at least. And then the legislation changed. Some of the formulations changed. It was more difficult for people with substance use disorder to misuse those drugs. And they turned to cheaper drugs such as heroin and now illicit fentanyl.
0: And the problem with fentanyl, can you just elaborate shortly on that?
1: So fentanyl, actually all opioids are important agents. So when we they're say essential. opioids,
0: we mean the. essentially it's, it's from the opium Originally, base, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they're
1: all in that family. Um, they're sister drugs to one another. So drugs like morphine and codeine and oxycodone and hydrocodone and hydromorphone. And there's a, a large number of these agents. And they're all useful. They all have slight variations. Some people respond well to one. Other people respond well to another. And so the opioids are useful in treating cancer pain. Unfortunately, they've been misused, and any opioid can be misused by a person who has risk for substance use disorder. It's not the opioid that causes the substance use disorder. The opioid is what's used by the person with this disorder, yeah, I
0: think what I've heard is that when so mostly everyone, if you take an opioid-based medicine, then there will be a short period of time after that where there's sort of uh, a effect on your body, but that goes away in most people. Is that correct?
1: For most people, there are short-term side effects. Yeah. Some people get sedated or a little bit sleepy or fuzzy. They don't quite think as sharp as they did before. Some people get queasy. Um, over time those side effects go away, constipation doesn't. The challenge of misuse or substance use disorder is more a function of the person. And boy, we need to understand that as well. There's genetics, family history, past painful traumatic experiences like sexual abuse, PTSD, and then Past use of substances or current use of substances are all risk factors for misusing opioids or other substances too.
0: So, so this is troublesome because if if it's validated to use this for some patients, but they are at risk of developing subsequent problems, mm-hmm. how would one decide what to do? Mm-hmm. It's you know by the end of the day, it's binary: do, mm-hmm. don't, but. It's so much more complex, isn't it?
1: It is much more complex because there are times when you have to. Um, Someone with very advanced disease, ethically, if we have very few other options for that person, we need to use opioids. So what that means is another response, which is how to do this safely, Mm. how to minimize the risk of substance use disorder. So that entails a lot of work on our part as clinicians, first to understand the person's risk, to ask yeah. them some of these questions, and then to be really careful when we prescribe the opioids, make, make, make complicated decisions. Is it the right thing to do and isn't it? And if it is the right thing to do, how do we minimize the risk? Maybe giving smaller amounts shorter periods of time uh, between refills, um, checking in with the patient, engaging family to help so that the use doesn't become compulsive.
0: So there's actually something you can do, even if, if you have a person at risk and they do get it. There's still, there's still some things you can regulate to make the, the risk less
1: yes. or smaller. Yes. Yeah? What I find is for that the average person who really doesn't have risk, all the media attention has really frightened them. Yeah. And they hear about fentanyl and they don't want a fentanyl patch for their cancer related pain or they're very fearful that they're going to become addicted because some celebrity just announced their addiction or died from an overdose. So it's so important was, to be honest. So yeah. if there's
0: a person who, who is fearful, yeah. Um and it's because of lack of knowledge. So I'm not sure. I don't think I should do this. But my doctor says I should. What would you what would your recommendation be to this person?
1: Share your fears. And hopefully we've inquired that's not always happening. So if you are fearful, let your doctor, your nurse, your team be aware that you're pretty cautious about this. And this is what's making you cautious. And This is your fear and why you hold that fear so that we can discuss it and either address it um, or maybe if it's not really, you know, it's your concern. But maybe if it isn't a major concern for us, we can share that with you, too, so that you can be more comfortable getting the relief you need.
0: Yeah. And I I sort of hijacked you, but Mm -hmm. coming back to your plenary, Mm -hmm. if If someone was sitting in the room and, you know, they take a picture and they go into Twitter and then they write a really short sentence about what you said, what would you have hoped that they had tweeted about your plenary?
1: That there are clear benefits to the use of opioids in the right population after a thorough assessment and with appropriate risk mitigation techniques, which means techniques to reduce the risk to the greatest degree possible for the development of substance use disorder.
0: That's wonderful. So if we, if we met again in 10 years' time, mm-hmm. what, would you, uh, what would you think we're saying? What would you hope we're saying? If you were doing another plenary and I had the pleasure of interviewing you again, what would the tweet say in 10 years' time?
1: You mean besides the tweet that says, Oh my gosh, she's got a lot more wrinkles and gray hair. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Oh my I'm,
0: gosh, she still looks young. Right, yeah.
1: I wish that were true. But unfortunately, gravity takes its toll every day. <laughs> Seriously, I would hope that we have found the answers. We've found this happy middle ground where we're able to provide opioids. Because At this point, they really are our mainstay of treatment. That we can provide the opioids for our patients who are in need, that they're not having the challenges that unfortunately we're facing in accessing these drugs, and that we aren't contributing to the problems within our communities. That would be. That's a really long tweet. That's a long tweet. But, but yep. you
0: can do it in separate. So Thank let's you. say they tweeted that. Yes. And I ask you, how did we get here? Yeah. So how, how are we going to get to where you just said we are in 10 years? What's the way forward? Yeah.
1: Education for all of us, professionals, patients, the community, family members. We all have to work as a team. We need more research. We need to understand Who is at risk for substance use disorder? Because we don't want to cause more of that disorder as well, right?
0: And neither to stigmatize everyone.
1: That's right. That's right. So we need research. We need education. We need clear communication and openness. um, And not hiding this problem um, because it's stigmatized. Uh, We need to air it and talk about it openly.
0: And that is almost as if I framed you here, because my last thing I wanted to talk to you about is, do, have you heard about the new curriculum that IFIC has produced for, for pain nursing?
1: Yes, yes. I had the chance to review some of it last night, yeah.
0: that's. Uh, what, I don't want to think, yeah, well, you, I can ask you, what do you think about it with the brief time you've had to look at it?
1: I think it's fantastic, because it can be used by nurses who are very interested in pain, but it also could be integrated into a variety of basic nursing training programs, both at the basic level and at the specialty level. Um, many nursing colleges and universities um, may not have a pain expert to draw upon. And so EFIC has really given them a fantastic tool to base their curriculum.
0: Yeah. And I can say, so I've been involved in, in the PT, so the physiotherapy yes. curriculum. And, and we have had participants doing the exam from the US, including mm-hmm. um, Deborah, who got the, the medal for doing the best exam, actually. Mm-hmm. So that's a girl mm-hmm. from your and hometown. And she's from my state. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so actually, it is even though it's called the European Diploma, that's because it's the European Pain Federation who sort of developed it. But it's actually for everyone. Yeah. So by 2021, when there will be an exam, that might be one way to qualify the skills that most that many nurses do have mm-hmm. but that we just need more with that knowledge Somewhere we we need more and of course we also need to integrate the patients as you said yes
1: yeah.
0: thank you so much for your time
1: it was it's my been pleasure. A pleasure thank yeah. you this was fun
0: and have a good evening
1: <laughs> thank you you too
0: thank you